When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I'm James Crepe for the Oregonian and Oregon Live, uh, bringing you another edition of the podcast here uh, to recap a really remarkable comeback for Oregon uh, against a Washington State team whose one should have been ranked going into that game. Uh, and I think and strongly suspect that uh, over the course of the season we'll find their way into the top 25, ended up having a really solid season, uh, if not a really good season. Uh, they're already well on their way to one and obviously came within a couple of minutes of uh, yet another uh, top 25 win uh, and what would have been a really big win for that program. I think they're going to end up having a good year uh, and Oregon deserves credit, not just for a comeback in general, but a comeback against a really, really good team and a quarterback who is going to be a problem for a lot of Pac-12 defenses and Cameron Ward. But we'll go over, obviously, the comeback and then also set up for this week's matchup with Stanford on a, a late Saturday night game at Autzen Stadium. To get into the comeback specifically uh, on the plays that are obvious, we'll certainly touch on those. But there are a couple of plays that I'm calling them hidden plays in that they're hidden by uh, just the by circumstance. They're hidden by uh, the volume of things that occurred in the final roughly three and a half, four minutes of the game where they were very big in the moment, but because there were so many, <laughs> there's, there were multiple touchdowns that kind of redefined everything, uh, they get lost because of just the sheer volume of plays that occurred. Uh, but, and, there, and there were a couple on both offense and defense. Offensively, the fourth down throw from Bo Nix to Bucky Irving on fourth and two was absolutely enormous. I mean, at a, at a whole other level. This is not on the drive that gets capped off on the go-ahead drive on the touchdown to Troy Franklin. This is the fourth and two with about five and a half minutes to go that's, that is leading into the eventual touchdown to Cam McCormick. And then the defense had to make a stop. And then, you know, many things had to happen thereafter. But if they don't convert that fourth and two down 12 with less than six minutes to play, you can forget about the rest. The game is probably over. Now, the, the point that I want to get on the throw is not just, oh, well, simply what the outcome of the game ends up being. The play itself <laughs> was absolutely remarkable. Not just, oh, they converted on a fourth down, therefore it's a big play. The play itself, it was not exactly as it was drawn up because it ended up being uh, extended and delayed. And the throw from Knicks was, to say it was perfectly placed, may not be doing it justice. And then the catch from Irving, there was not exactly a lot of separation here. This was an absolutely perfectly placed ball. 
and Irving ends up making a great grab, gets tackled immediately, and hangs on in a 21-yard conversion on fourth and two at midfield. And gets tackled at the 28-yard line for Wazoo. And like I say, a handful of plays later, uh, Oregon's in the end zone with the touchdown of McCormick. But the it's not just that, the, oh, they converted and then scored and everything that happened thereafter. As I say, go back, watch the play if you haven't seen it, um, other than the one one time through. That throw, <laughs> that is probably, I mean, I, I, I'm all ears for anybody to suggest otherwise. That throw is probably the throw of the season thus far and it will be extraordinarily difficult for Bo Nix to actually top that throw because of how difficult it is uh, under the circumstances and everything else that goes with it where he places it though and the amount of separation that the receiver has is so that that window is so small Absolutely remarkable play. And as I say, this is before even the McCormick touchdown, let alone the Franklin touchdown, the Funa pick six, Wazoo's last touchdown for those who had a a vested interest in that particular score. A lot of things happen thereafter. Don't let that play get lost at all. Not just because obviously, yes, the game could go a very different direction, but it's not just, oh, they didn't convert a fourth and two by a, a broken play and a quarterback scramble for three yards. This was a absolute, again, might have been the throw of the season, not just because of circumstance, but because of just how tight that window was uh, and how small a amount of separation uh, Bucky had in order to execute a throw to him and also for him to make the catch. A, a remarkable play on both ends of it. Huge play. And as I say, um, to me, it, it's probably the throw of the season, not just so far, but it, I think we'll probably stay on the test because it's just... Just an absolutely remarkable play. Um, That's one. The other on the defensive side that also gets kind of glazed past because of the ensuing scores and how the game shifts. But the game has, I'm not saying it doesn't shift if this play doesn't occur, but circumstance certainly change. After Oregon scores to get within 34-29, and there's 335 to go, when uh, Wazoo takes over, uh, approximately, or 340-something ago. The opening play, possession in 10 for Wazoo at its 25, it's a run play. It's a basic run. Justin Flo's tackle for loss on that. One is just a violent hit, and it's a big hit, and that's in and of itself is a, is a big play. But f- to knock Wazoo completely back on its heels, literally and proverbially. After it's now, it's gone from a two-score game, six and a half minutes to go. This game is effectively on ice. I mean, inside the stadium, on the McCormick touchdown, not that the Wazoo crowd was particularly into it, but you really didn't feel like, other than on the Oregon sideline, which obviously was pretty excited, there really wasn't much of a, a, a feeling like, oh, okay, well, they scored, but, you know, Wazoo still got the lead in this game. Yeah, it's one score, but it's not going to take a whole lot to end it. For the very ensuing play to put Washington State behind the sticks, and then, frankly, mismanagement on the part of the Cougars thereafter, where 
the play-by-flow is enormous. And again, as I say, it's kind of lost because about 20 plays happen in the game thereafter. But on second and 13, inexplicably, not only that Washington State passes in general, which, okay, you you can make the argument even, hey, at least they're staying true to themselves, that they threw an incomplete pass. They're not looking to pass on second and eight or second and seven or second and five. They'll probably run again. But when the first down play goes for a loss of three, and not a loss of three where there was this back and forth running or quarterback scrambling, whatever. No, just a standard handoff that just gets completely blown up in the backfield immediately by flow. Now you're at second and 13. All right, fine. Even make the statement that they kind of had to pass. Sure. But Cameron Ward would have been better falling over just to keep the clock running and or force Oregon to have to take a timeout than to stop the clock outright and then set up a third and long which had been problematic for Oregon on the day. And it's another pass play. It's complete, but it's complete for two yards. And that also stops the clock. Enormous shift in momentum. And a shift in momentum that happened not just because of the stop on third down, which, yes, was rather (laughs) a bit of a necessity, but it was the plays that preceded it. How did they get to third and 13 in the first place? Well, a negative play on first down. An incomplete pass on second down, which again, I quarterback literally would have been better falling over, even for a loss of yardage, uh, just to keep the clock either running and or force another timeout. And then, uh, like I say, to get the short completion on third, tackle immediately, uh, and force the punt was huge. Now, obviously, to the big plays and setting up for the touchdown to Franklin on a third and one at the 50. Where, yes, it's a te- as they went over after the game, it's a tempo call. They get nine yards on second and 10, and they run the same play, and Troy runs a different route concept because Wazoo had gone effectively cover zero, which uh, for those in, uh, not as dialed into the vernacular just means there's no safety over the top because Oregon's gone empty in the backfield, five wide receivers or five players split out, whether it's receivers, tight ends, running backs, et cetera, five targets spread out for Knicks to throw to. And the defense counters by just lining up man-to-man across the board. There's no safety over the top. They notice it. They see it. They're going for it on fourth down regardless if they get there. And rather than just saying, okay, third and one, let's you know move the sticks one way or another, um, you know, Knicks could – take quarterback draw or something and just move the sticks, drop to a knee, pop up, run it again. Nope. They go for the gusto and a absolutely uh, just really well-read play across the board, particularly from Troy and Bo and on seeing what the defensive coverage was. It's an option route for Troy to run that uh, when he picks up on that. And obviously Bo sees it develop, connects with him. The, Presence of mind along the way combined with the uh, presence of poise in the moment when Troy gets knocked a little bit off kilter and to be able to, you know, stay, hold his balance, put his hand down, stay upright uh, and score and get into the end zone for a go ahead score is again, that's, that's how you draw it up. Uh, not, you know, <laughs> maybe not exactly in a, uh, uh, down a score in, you know, two and a half minutes and whatnot, but in terms of if you're going to go and perform a two minute drill in practice, 
that's pretty much how you draw it up. Now, having said that, that is a circumstance that, historically speaking, for Bo Nix, and this is what we'll get to uh, next, and not to you know jump past uh, the obvious with with Mace Funa's pick six, which is also a huge play, and and we'll we'll get to that later. Bo has this season obviously had the low moment against Georgia. I'm not I'm not going to ignore that. It was a, a the, the second interception against Georgia was a bad play. It, was, it just was. But on a larger sample size now, we're four games in. And okay, even if you just take the three games against FBS competition, and forget about the Eastern Washington game, fine. His situational splits in the moments where during his Auburn career, he had the greatest difficulty when his team was trailing, when he was on the road, when it was third down, particularly third down, obvious passing situations. In the fourth quarter. And now combine all of those things this past weekend. They're on the road. Teams down two scores and then one score. There's third downs and we're in the fourth quarter. Throw all those things combined. Those are, that is the, that for three years, that was the exact circumstances and recipe. For if you wanted to get the, for you know, again, for those who've paid attention to the, the narrative of the past three years, the good bow, bad bow uh, construct, if you wanted to come up with the exact circumstances where Bonex had struggled, that was exactly it. To a T. What you got in Pullman was a absolute 180 degree opposite direction by way of results. And it wasn't the first time this season or even this, well, let's say this month, the whole, the whole season's been this month. This, this season you have seen that this quarterback has begun to redefine himself here at this level. And I think that's obviously a huge positive sign for for Oregon and its fan base and this program for the rest of the year. But also a sign, I, I, I don't want to get too declarative here by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that's part of it of these are college players. And I think at times now, especially for quarterbacks and especially for quarterbacks who play early in their careers, when that was not something that necessarily happened, you know, historically speaking, freshmen and sophomores didn't play a whole lot at the quarterback position. And a guy like Bo Nick steps in and obviously plays from the very first game of his career. We get too much in a rush to not just judgment, but declarative statements about players in general, but particularly quarterbacks and particularly quarterbacks who, at you know, they're making these plays at 18, 19 to 20. And, for those who are at the extreme high end, and hey, they deserve the praise. But for those who have a variability by way of, yeah, they have some high-end moments, as Bonix did while he was at Auburn, and also some really low-end moments, which he had as well, we get too declarative, too overly characteristic of that variance. And then it's like, oh, well, people just get pegged into a certain place. Oh, if you perform well in those moments, obviously, you're great. If you don't perform well in those moments, oh, you're terrible. 
And if you're inconsistent, well, then that's all you are. You're inconsistent. How about <laughs> there's a long enough timeline here? Now, how about the, how many great college quarterbacks have there been? Great. Who achieved in those moments or or not. And then go to the NFL and they can't translate it there. And you go, well, I thought they were great the whole time. What happened? Or vice versa. How many guys who weren't that great necessarily in college who end up just, you know, not great, but necessarily by way of uh, uh, every statistic or, or Heisman contenders, but end up being really solid professional quarterbacks. There's more to it. And I think here what you're seeing with Bo Nix in his fourth college season so far, again, long, long season ago, is a player, to his credit, combined with this coaching staff and offensive coordinator Kenny Dillingham specifically, who have turned a page, who have connected together and worked together to basically refine and sand off the edges of a, and, and refine a player who needed to evolve, needed to take away some of the mistakes and the issues that caused them trouble. And what has he gotten in return? He's gotten the best offensive line that he's had to play behind his entire career, and they still haven't allowed a sack, which is a credit to them and also to Knicks, who, who frankly, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, he should have been sacked once in this past game. And it wouldn't have been wouldn't have even been uh, a fault of the offensive line or frankly him. It was a, there was a play where Wazoo brought a late blitz and they had it. I mean, they flat out, they absolutely had him and TJ Bass did everything he could possible uh, to try and adjust and, and get it at that moment. But next just managed to keep his balance and managed to get a throw off uh, on a throwaway to, to save the play. And avoid being sacked. But that aside, he's played behind the best offensive line of his career. He's playing with probably top to bottom, the most talented set of skill position players in his career. And all right, yes, again, we can go back to season opener all we want. But with each and every week, that's going to get more and more in the rear view. He is playing well in the very situations that he didn't before. And that's a massive positive sign for Oregon for the rest of the season. The more he can continue that, certainly. You hope that it doesn't require too many more uh, two-minute drill circumstances along the way. But be that as it may. And that's where you say the story isn't written yet. It's not done. The book's not finished. And that's the beauty of people's college careers is that there's still time. Uh, even even when it seems like after three years, oh, you already know who this player is. Well, maybe not. Maybe not yet. You see, even in the, in the NFL where there's a much longer time horizon, maybe it's not there yet. And it's it's intriguing to see how this has occurred and get into how it's all happened. Uh, how is it that Bonex has managed to, uh, like I say, really avoid with the interception against Georgia notwithstanding, avoid some of the very issues that not just plagued the first three years of his career, defined the first three years of his career. Again, ask, you know, what is the perception and reality and, and even just what the data has said and what the statistics has said during the course of his uh, Auburn career compared to what he's done now. It's night and day by way of the the biggest moments and the situational moments, credit to him. 
And I say, and also credit to this offensive coaching staff because, and, and the rest of the players for that matter, for uh, helping them get there. Because this is not just a matter of, oh, it's a small sample or whatever. These are huge moments, <laughs> absolutely humongous moments. And he closed the game seven of eight, 10 of 15 in the fourth quarter, seven of eight, starting with that fourth down throw to Bucky Irving with a couple of first downs and a couple of touchdowns, all of those plays coming where Oregon's trailing in the game. I mean, what more can you ask for? That's how you achieve the biggest comeback for the program in 15 years. That's how you achieve, for the other side of the coin, for those at Wazoo, another, you know, cooging it outcome. Because the opposing quarterback has an absolutely remarkable finish to the game with some huge plays and huge moments. As I say, credit to them. There's the hidden plays along the way. But for the plays that are obvious, also huge as well. Like it touched on with, uh, obviously, the defensive play also from Justin Flo. Yes, the interception return for touchdown for Mace Funa that seals it as well. And a credit to him, uh, not just for you know an instinctual play and, and adjusting to something you saw in practice during the week and those th- and saw throughout the course of the game on those screen plays. Funa put himself in that position, not just in that moment, but to be on the field in that moment. That was a, the exact an exact situation where we talked in the off season about Mace Funa getting uh, leaner, losing weight in order to get back on the field in uh, pass rush situations and, and certain spots in the game. That was the definition of the situation that he was putting himself in, not just on last Saturday, during the game, or during the course of practice leading into that game. He put himself in that situation last Saturday by what he did in April and March. Because this is a player who was not going to be on the field and wasn't on the field last season in those situations. Because by frame and body type, he couldn't have been. You were not going to put a guy who was there as a basically a designated edge setter in the run game on the field for a, a late game two-minute drive where the opponent had to pass. And an air raid offense, no less. But when an edge player who lost considerable weight in order to be more of a pass rusher, and yes, can still obviously be effective in the run game, but that is no longer his, uh, you know, the only tool in his toolbox. Mace would have put himself on that field, and in that moment, as I say, it had nothing to, it was not explicitly and uh, only and exclusively because of what he did throughout the course of the game or what he did throughout the course of the week. That was months of preparation and adjustment that put him in position to make that play. And again, it's the biggest play of his career. So those were obviously the huge plays and moments from last week's game uh, for Oregon to fuel, like I say, just a absolutely furious comeback. Uh, One for certainly the program record books. 29 points in the fourth quarter is 
as best anybody can tell, <laughs> the most points Oregon has scored in the fourth quarter of a game since at least uh, the early 1970s. Uh, and we say at least because prior to that, the uh, the record books get a little bit <laughs> a little bit hazy uh, in terms of uh, you know quarter by quarter box scores. So at least uh, somewhere around 1972 uh, is about as far back as uh, records currently uh, go for something like that. So and a massive comeback, uh, tremendous outcome for the Ducks, and it's early in the season, but it does show in the big picture of how different. Are things with a three and one team starting off league play with a win versus had they not been able to pull off that kind of comeback where they're two and two, you start off league play with a loss, and now what are you thinking? Now, now what's the the potential for the season? If Washington State holds on, if they don't convert, forget about all the other later plays, if they just don't convert the fourth down from from Nick Irving. And Washington State hangs on for, I don't care if it's a two-score game, one-score game. Loss or loss. The way that you're going to be thinking about the trajectory of the rest of the season is very different at 2-2 and and 0-1 and and feeling like, uh, yeah, Washington State was, like I say, going to end up having probably a very good season regardless. But you're feeling like you just got behind them. USC is obviously having a nice run and start to things. And... Can this team make it to the championship game? Now, you're feeling very much like you're, you know this is still a team very much alive to be competing for the conference title game, and we'll see what happens, you know, in the big picture thereafter. But that's the the early uh, coin flip that is by way of, again, just as the the season opener can be overly declarative, the conference opener can be overly declarative by way of result, but it sets up for a Second game, the uh, Pac-12 home opener against Stanford this week. And now we'll shift gears to that and take an early look ahead to that. Uh, We'd have a uh, guest on. We certainly will get back to having guests on. But uh, given that the the Stanford beat is not quite as robust as some of the others in the league, uh, we'll just take a look at Stanford ourselves. I was able to hop on uh, uh, Tuesday's Zoom call with with Stanford coach David Shaw uh, and get his uh, uh, perspective on a couple of things. But first, from a, an injury standpoint, uh, as Shaw is uh, one of the more forthright coaches, not just in the league, but the country when it comes to uh, his team's personnel. Unfortunately for Stanford, they're going to be down their starting running back, starting running back uh, EJ Smith, who's going to be out for the season. So uh, Lake Oswego's Casey Filkins, who has played against the Ducks before, uh, even going back to 2020, uh, he had a pretty big game in that game. He will be the lead back, not just on Saturday, but for the remainder of the season for Stanford. So that certainly changes some things in the backfield for them. And secondly, that the two starting tackles for Stanford, which is already down its right guard, Branson Bragg, who medically retired before the start of the season, their starting tackles are both questionable uh, at this point. Entering the game, and and Stanford will probably make an announcement Thursday night as to their status uh, for whether or not they'll even travel. And that is not just uh, rough in general, but this is a Stanford team who, you know, I, I will get into the history. We'll touch on it here. I, I realize this is always a series that the, I can already hear Ducks fans just going, as several have already tweeted at me this week with, regarding some of these stories. 
Well, doesn't matter. They'll still manage to pull off something. They'll still manage to play way above themselves. I, I get it. I know history tells you that. So you'd be uh, foolish not to consider the, the historic element. But put history aside here for a second. This is a Stanford team who, for whatever reason, has lost a remarkable number now of FBS games dating back through last season. You know, they haven't beaten an FBS team since the Oregon game last year. And remember all the circumstances, obviously, that even made that possible. This is a Stanford team who is basically worse in the country right now in turnover margin, in tackles for loss, and sacks allowed. They're either dead last or in the bottom five in those categories. Well, those are the categories that get you beat. Badly. Really, really badly. And, you, and no matter how many veteran players they have, and they have a lot of them. A lot of them. The top eight tacklers on defense are all seniors. They do have some talent there, particularly in the secondary. And an offense who's got plenty of veteran players as well. But some of those veteran players we're referring to are the guys who are out right now or could be out whether it's the running back in Smith or as I say on the offensive line where Branson Bragg was a senior and he medically retires and Walter Rouse, the left tackle is one of those guys probably. Well, I would say probably it's questionable whether or not he'll play this weekend. And miles Hinton at right tackle is another veteran player for him. You can have as much experience as you want, but if it's not there on the field, it's, it's, experience on the roster but if they're not able to you know go out there and execute or they're not healthy enough to be there um, that puts them in a bind in a bad spot so this is a Stanford team who yes they still have a bevy of six foot two six foot four six foot five receivers and tight ends that that element didn't go away for sure and Tanner McKee is no matter what his stat line by way of interceptions is at the moment and it is for him uh, rather unfortunate that he's got six touchdowns to four interceptions. He is the most prototypical passer in the conference. And for the Ducks fans out there who just want to assume that Stanford will just manage to uh, play, punch up and, and play above its uh, its uh, current trajectory at the moment, that's fine. Well, he's going to be the element of it, obviously. Him and the receiving core and tight end specifically, those are the guys to you know, obviously be most concerned with. You have a prototypical pocket passer who, yes, has made some mistakes and been sacked at a very, very high rate this season. But when he has time, when he has time, and that is the key, when he's kept clean, when they're able to protect him, he is a problem. I and mean, there's no way around it. When, he, when he's able to actually have time, frankly, there are not that many who are a whole lot better particularly in this league. He's really good. His pro potential is very high. If he had a better offensive line, not just the interceptions, probably less than obviously the sacks are less all around team performance is better, but McKee's still completing 67% of his passes. The touchdown interception part is not as great, like I say, but that's, you know, that's not necessarily all on him by any stretch of the imagination. And yes, the receiving core 
led this season by Michael Wilson. But whether it's him or John Humphreys or Elijah Higgins or Bryson Tremaine, who suffered the big injury last year against uh, Oregon, or a tight end in Ben Urosik, the Cardinal always have, always managed to have three and four and five receivers and tight ends who are all 6'2", 6'4", 6'5". These are big bodies. They're big targets. And it's always a brutal matchup that way. It is not the Stanford of old by way of, even if Smith were healthy enough to play, it's not the Stanford of old with the absolutely elite running back who is a not just 1,000-yard rusher, you know, 1,500-plus-yard rusher or something. It's not that Stanford necessarily. I'm not saying they're not going to line up in some power formations at times. But it's not that style of Stanford team. But they're obviously still plenty capable uh, when they're able to protect the quarterback of being, I'm not going to say necessarily an explosive offense, but being a productive enough offense. Stylistically, they are not going to veer very far away from how they go about things from a pace standpoint. They are going to try and take the air out of the ball because they have to. Whether they're offensive tackles play or not, they're going to try and shorten the game. That's they they absolutely have to right now. So no matter what they do at running back, no matter what they do at the offensive line this weekend, they're going to play <laughs> offensively speaking. This is going to be a trudging kind of a game. The only way Oregon can break them from that is, of course, if you start getting up multiple scores and do it in a hurry. You do that, you force Stanford to play faster than they want to, earlier than they want to, that gets them off kilter. When you put them behind, that leaves them more susceptible, uh, forces them to have to pass that much more. And like I say, with a bad offensive line and with a team that has had a uh, really, really, really high rate of turnovers, particularly fumbles, when you have those things up against you, if you get behind a whole bunch, that leaves you that much more susceptible to it and it snowballs against you. Well, if Oregon's offense can pile up points in a hurry against Stanford and get them behind the eight ball in a hurry, well, then, yeah, then you hope you'd be able to force uh, Tanner McKee to make a whole bunch of faster decisions and uh, when he's under duress and under pressure and an offensive line to have to protect in obvious passing situations, but that's been a problem. There's no way around that. Now, the Stanford defense, I mentioned in the secondary, a couple of guys in particular who are not just really talented, but are probably future NFL guys. And a Kendall Williamson at safety, who is one of the harder hitting safeties, harder hitting defensive backs, period, uh, in the league. He's tied for the team lead in tackles this year with 19. And Caillou Blue Kelly, who I don't think, not just Ducks fans, I don't think anyone in the Pac-12 who plays Stanford on a regular basis uh, is going to be shedding very many tears uh, that this will be Kyle Kelly's last college season because he is, other than a cornerback perhaps on your own team, uh, if you're a fan, he is the corner in the league who very few in the league really look forward to having to play. Uh, he has been that good. He's been that good for some time. He is excellent. And there's just no way around it. He's an excellent cover corner. Not saying unbeatable. You know, part of playing corner is you're going to get beat at times. But he is one of the best. One of the best at what he does. And he is probably, I'm just calling it what it is, he's probably going to get matched up with Troy Franklin a whole lot this weekend. And that's going to be 
not just the interesting matchup on that side of the ball during the game, but we're now reaching that point in the fifth game of the season where, and this is where we'll, we'll wrap up on this uh, edition of the podcast, this matchup specifically as an example of something larger uh, of the game in general, and not just this game, but in you know the, the games ahead. Once you get three and four games in to a year, that's when all right, you had off-season scouting, coaching staffs from, from the analysts and GAs up to the position coaches, coordinators, head coach. They spent all this time reviewing you know, a se- the, the prior season's game tape on opponents and tendencies and charting things and coordinators and, you know, oh, coaching staff changes happen. So, okay, so what does this guy do at his previous stops and et cetera, et cetera. But now that you've got three or four games of tape to go over, and situation uh, moments to go over now here in the moment with this team, with this personnel, with this quarterback, with these defensive players, whatever the case is. Now, what adjustments were there? What things have they started to get away from? What thing? What new things have they integrated, etc.? Now that you're that many games in, you're reevaluating, you're reassessing along with your, not just for yourselves and your own scouting, you're coming up with answers for, new answers for, the game plan each week. Well, in the Franklin versus Kelly matchup that will be a big part of Saturday's game, is the first, not not just going to be probably literally the toughest test that Troy Franklin faces from a, a coverage standpoint uh, in the course of a game this season outside of the Georgia game, but it is also the first in that now the opposing defensive coordinators are going to be able to pick up on some tendencies from Oregon now that they're four games into the season. And after this game, it'll be five games into the season. What are some of those tendencies? What are some of those things that Bo Nix is doing? What are some of those things that the offensive line is doing? What are some of the things that the receivers and tight ends are doing from a blocking standpoint, from a route running standpoint? What are some of the things that Troy Franklin is taking advantage of now, like on that option route on the touchdown that last season, he either wasn't on the field for or may not have you know, necessarily made that kind of a play last season, even if he were put in the position to. Well, those are the things he's doing. So now defensive coordinators, defensive players have those sorts of things. What is their counter to it? You saw that, I think, frankly, you saw some of that perhaps in the red zone last week from Washington State. Washington State's defense is really good. Jake Dickert is really good at what he does. I don't think Oregon necessarily had bad plays in the red zone. I think they got out-executed by Washington State's defense in the first half. Washington State read plays really well, defended it really well, put themselves in a better position to make the plays in those moments. Now, of course, the game goes how it goes, but I think you're starting to see now that you've got a couple of games into the season that, yeah, defense is going to have some different kinds of answers, different looks. Terrence Ferguson has been the go-to weapon inside the red zone. They went to him a couple of times. Not saying that automatically, oh, well, because one one team took him away, that you know they're never going to go to him again. Hardly. It's that, all right, they started to have answers. Well, Troy Franklin, yes, he comes up obviously with a tremendous play at midfield there, and, and this will skew some of those stats when you have a 50-yard touchdown. But he leads the country, leads the country. In receiving yards between the 40s. Now, again, when you have a 50-yard touchdown, that that is a huge part of why that is. 
But nevertheless, he leads the country in receiving yards when the ball is between the 40-yard lines. Well, if you're an opposing defensive coordinator, don't you think you're going to perhaps play Oregon's lead receiver a wee bit different when the Ducks get the ball inside the 40s, that they might be looking for a big play from their lead guy at that point, that that's the zone of the field, that double coverage might now be steered in his direction a little bit more. Now, would that necessarily have been the case in game one or game two? Probably not. But now in game five or game six, it will. So what are the counters that defenses start to have for Oregon's offense? Concurrently, what is the response knowing that that defenses will start to have answers? What is the response and adjustment that Oregon has? And that's the in-game chess match. And it's the in-game chess match that not just happens naturally across the sport this time of the year and th- all throughout October and November in particular, but it's the in-game chess match that I think is intriguing when you have a new coaching staff uh, and a new coaching staff with new play callers, all those sorts of things. And especially on this Saturday in a matchup with Stanford where regardless of talent, regardless of the current predicament they find themselves in by way of injuries, regardless of the current losing streak they have with FBS opponents, you know that they're going to be well coached. And you know that the coaching staff, that these are situations that are not going to uh, escape their purview. They're going to be well aware of certain tendencies. Now, again, execution, that's a different matter, but they're at least going to have that uh, the knowledge uh, and and be preparing themselves accordingly. And again, like I say, I totally understand that, yes, historically, this series has had some highly unusual finishes, bizarre circumstances. Stanford has managed to provide Oregon with, you know, its lone conference losses three times in the last 20 some odd years. Even going, you, know, you don't even have to go back 20 plus years to to get to that point. Just go in the last four or five years. The 2018 game ends with the fumble. The 2020 game had a faulty COVID test knock Stanford's quarterback out of the game. And then last year's game ends in as controversial a fashion from a penalty standpoint as you could pretty much draw up. Plenty of players on these teams who have been around for one, if not multiple, of those occurrences. This is a series that, for whatever reason, has just featured <laughs> a bevy of really strange late-game situations, circumstances, outcomes, you name it. And I'm sure for many of the Duck fan, they just want this one on Saturday night. After what will be a long day on Saturday, uh, they just want this one to be a... Uh, not just a Ducks win, but a Ducks win where they're ahead by three and four touchdowns throughout the course of the game and can put it on ice and call it a day. Uh, because I don't think many Oregon fans would like to add to the uh, add to the history books and the annals of uh, the Stanford series with another you know one score nail biter at the end, uh, especially after last weekend's comeback. I think plenty plenty would be more than happy to be uh, celebrating a cruise to victory kind of a uh, performance, but. Having said that, again, I appreciate the history of it. I know that Stanford is obviously, you know, this would not just make their season to date, could very well make their season in general, uh, given that they've already played USC. That if they were to pull pull off an upset where they are 17-point underdogs, uh, if they were to come into Otson and get a win like that, that would be 
obviously monumental for Stanford uh, and incredibly disappointing for the Ducks if that were to occur on Saturday. But we'll get to that game next week. For now, we certainly appreciate all of those of you who subscribe to the podcast. For those of you who don't, make sure to subscribe, uh, give us a like, review, the whole thing. So that way more folks can find us as well. We'll come back next week and go over the Stanford game and take a look ahead to the Arizona game. And uh, hope to have on uh, one of our buddies who covers the Arizona Wildcats. And we'll have them on uh, for next week's edition of the podcast. Uh, For now, appreciate everybody as always. And uh, again, enjoy the game on Saturday.